to come this morning. The nest is about empty. I don't have anybody else at home, so she, she has to, <laughs> to, to, to take that assignment. But having said that, again, I want to thank every one of you for being here. And I truly believe that this, our time together this year will be a radically different one. Uh, I'm trusting God for that, and I know that you come prepared to receive. And I just want to admonish you to just be totally, completely open to whatever God wants to do with us and through us and for us. Uh, in Genesis chapter 49, this is where we took this uh, 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 gathering from. Genesis 49 in verse 1, the Bible says, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. So this is the scriptural base for what we're doing. Jacob called his sons and daughters together to share with them what will befall them in the last days. But for us, let me say to you on the outset, what shall befall you is good things. Amen. Some of you are not convinced on that. The way, the way you guys answered me is like, you are still thinking about good things coming to you. I'm saying that in these last days, only goodness will befall you in Jesus' name. Amen. That's what we're trusting God for. However, in order for us to get there, to be in that position, in that place, where God can bring that to pass in our lives, there are some adjustments and alignments that we will need to make. And that's what this session today is all about, all day today. So let me just quickly begin by going into the message for this morning. And Father, again, we want to thank you for this privilege that we have to come before you and your presence. We do not take anything for granted. We are so grateful for your loving kindness, for your mercy, for your grace that is upon our lives we receive of your fullness and we thank you for blessing us so much and so father we thank you for the power of your spirit we invite you now as never before to open our ears our hearts that you'll anoint your word that we will receive your word with understanding and clarity and that by so doing we will never, ever remain the same. And God, that through what you are doing in us these next few days, that not only will we be changed, but God, we will become change agents wherever we go to declare your glory and to noise your fame abroad. And so, Father, we thank you for this privilege. We bless your name in it now and forever. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. So on that note, if you just go with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And I want to use for a theme for today, uh, the rest of God. The rest of God. Uh, this was something that God began to do in us, in-house here, towards the end of last year. I had no idea how far God was going to take this message when he started it. I had no idea how radically changed I would be as a result of this message when God first gave it. And I'm going to tell you, some of the things I'm about to share today, I learned even as I stood teaching. In other words, I'm talking I'm preaching, 
And I made mention of certain things. And God stopped me in my heart and said to me, Bank, do you believe what you just said? Now, the congregation didn't say that. They didn't know that. They, didn't, they, didn't, they, didn't, they were not a part of that interaction. But I'm speaking and I'm getting happy preaching the word and I made a pronouncement and right there in my heart, as I said it, God said, do you believe what you just said? Wow. No, I don't know about you. But that really got my attention. So in the days and weeks that passed, I had to critically look at the scriptures, prayerfully ask God certain questions, and I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, God gave us some answers that has totally radicalized my thinking, my believing, and by so doing, my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been incredible. So, that's where we're going to start this morning. Hebrews chapter 4. Now, to just give you a background in this book. The book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew believers who were being persecuted for their faith by the old folks. When I say old folks, I'm not talking about age. I'm talking about those who were in the old covenant. Now, please, in order for you to appreciate these Hebrew believers, to understand what they went through, please, let me set the stage. Let me give you the context. Let me paint the picture. These were men and women like you and I, who perhaps a few months ago used to participate in the old worship system where the temple stood. They offered animal sacrifices. They killed the oxen. They went through the burning of incense. They were all too familiar with the old system. They saw it. They were a part of it. And shortly after Jesus was crucified, buried and rose again from the dead, these Hebrew believers came to a point of decision to follow Jesus in the new covenant. Now, see, for me and you, we read the old and the new. The old is just a history literature to us. We never saw it. We never went, we were not a part of it. Well, let me say, maybe some of us were not a part of it. So for me and you, it's just a, a historical document. But for the Hebrew believers, it's not so. They tasted it. They saw it. They participated in it. They were very too, they were all too familiar with the old. So now they got born again. And they removed themselves from the old, from under the old covenant and trying to live by grace in a new covenant. And so their friends and families say, wait a minute, we used to go to a temple together. What's, what's going on with you? Why are you going to change now? We used to do this together. This is what we did. We killed the animals. We burned the incense. Now, you, you just can't now all of a sudden say you're not going to do that any longer. So the persecution was intense. Are you following me? I'm, I'm laying the context for the writings of Hebrew because if you miss that context, you may not appreciate some of the salient truths that the writer is trying to convey to those Hebrew believers and by extension to you and I today. So those guys 
were practitioners of the old covenant. They came out of that. They are in the new covenant. But their friends and families and all of the people around them that knew them as part of the old economy is saying to them, no, no, you can't do this. You are backsliding. Did you, did you hear what I just said? Because they are saying to them, listen, we used to, hey, what happened to you? What, what, what are you doing? You are backsliding. You guys are no longer coming to the temple. No more animal sacrifices. So they put a lot of pressure on them. Now, if you lived in the developing nations today, Asia, some parts of Africa, Middle East, you have a better appreciation for persecution. Because everything I'm saying so far, you are just listening to me, is you, 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 you don't have an appreciation for it. Why? We live in the greatest, most freest nation on the face of the earth. The biggest challenge to coming to church in America is it rained too hard. But when you live in an environment where the mere identification with Christ was a death penalty, you have a better appreciation. And as we speak, there are men and women all over the face of the earth that cannot come out and say they are born again because they know what it means. It's a death sentence. I mean, if you listen to the news, you just heard of the woman in Sudan who was condemned to death. What was her crime? She married a Christian. Pregnant woman who had a little child and because of the law in Sudan was forced to have a baby while being chained in prison. What was her offense? Just love Jesus. I'm saying that for you to appreciate what these guys are going through. And that's still happening today. Many parts of the Middle East, it's a death sentence to come out and say you're a believer. Absolutely. You don't, they don't need a policeman to do that. Your kin folks, your family members, will be the one that will do it. Because to them, it's a betrayal of what used to be. So that's the context of the book that we're starting or launching that from. I want you to understand that concept. So these Hebrew believers were under intense persecution. So the goal of the writer or the author of this book is to help them, the Hebrew believers, to help to establish them in the faith, to encourage them that no matter what's happening, no matter what they are hearing, no matter what they are seeing, no matter what else is going around them, that the decision they've made to be a part of the body of Christ and to worship under the new covenant is in fact the valid true position. Don't move, don't change, don't allow the circumstances around you to move you from this position. That's the goal. That's the goal. So in chapter 1, it begins to compare uh, uh, the um, Mosaic covenant or the, the ministry of Moses without of Jesus, the angels without of Jesus, the old covenant without of Jesus, to begin to give them the contrast and the comparison. So they will see the difference between, okay, this is what you used to have, this is not what you have. Moses was great, Jesus is greater. Angels are good, but the spirit of God is bigger. The priesthood of Aaron was fine, but the priesthood of Melchizedek, 
that we are honor is far more glorious. So on and on and on, it begins to make this com comparison. Okay? Have I lost anybody so far? All right. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Really, to really appreciate that, let me just go back to Hebrews chapter 3 and take the last few verses. Hebrews chapter 3, let me take it from verse 12. And really the theme for today is the rest of God. The rest of God. That's our theme for today. Entering into the rest of God. Hebrews 3 verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So, we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Really, it will not do justice. Let, let me just go back to Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Let, let me just say one more thing and then we're going to dive into this message properly. It's amazing to me that this author, in starting this whole book, to even begin with, in verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Whoa. Again, remember these people, their background. They heard through the prophets. They saw angels move. They saw the supernatural. They revered Moses as a huge figure in the, in, in, in the kingdom of God. The priesthood. And so this guy starts up and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. God in times past spoke to us through these various other instruments the prophets the fathers but in these last days he's spoken to us by and through his son jesus christ whoa hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 right off the bat in other words whatever else you've believed whatever else you've heard whatever channel of communication you've received in the past as of now the only channel through which God speaks is his son mm. you know I'm just standing here there's, there's so many rivers and streams of truth that's just coming at me let's just settle this at the beginning 
right up front, there is a language of God. That, that, you know, I said that, and I'm okay. Let, 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 let me back up. When the Bible said God said, Dog, what language did he speak? Was he speaking in French? Ebonics? English? Yoruba? Spanish? On and on and on in the scripture, we see, we see God said. What did he say? What means did he, in what means did he say it? Because we need to settle that. Because the reason we do not understand the rest of God and all of the things that go along with it is because God is speaking one language and we're trying to understand it through another language. If I was, if Pastor Anne Marie was to speak to me in Spanish, I will hear the words that she's speaking. But I lack understanding to respond to those words. Why? Because I have no comprehension of what she's saying. I'm not deaf. I could hear her. But I lack comprehension. So the reason I went back here just now is I want to make it clear to us. God is at one level speaking a particular language. And you and I are coming to hear him with different receptacles of communication. If he's speaking at, at this language and I'm bringing a different language to understand, it's, it's not, it's, it's, uh, he's speaking. I'm not deaf, I'm hearing words, but I lack the ability to respond to what he's saying because I lack comprehension. Huge. So from the very beginning of Hebrews, the writer says, listen, yeah, God, the same God, Jehovah, the most high God, he's spoken in the past through the prophets, through the fathers. If you will, Paul is saying, everything those guys have said, wrap it up, put it in the box and bury it. Ah, no, 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 you guys didn't hear me. Bury everything as they've said, because from now on, in these last days, there is only one other means God is going to speak. Through his son, Jesus Christ. End of story. Period. Therefore, by my definition, the language of God is son, niche. S-O-N-I-S-H. If you go to the Great Britain, to England, the Britons speak what? English. If you went to Finland, the Finns speak Finnish. If you went to Spain, the Spaniards speak Spanish. If you go to God, he speaks what? Sonish. If, if we miss that basic thing, everything else I'm going to say today, you'll be lost. Why? Because you and I will be trying to assess the truth or revelation through Greek, through Hebrew, through Latin, through English, Spanish, French, Ebonics, whatever you speak, 
You are trying to access this information through this means. And God is saying, wait a minute. Yes, at some time in the past, I spoke through those things. But now, in these last days, I'm only speaking one language, my son. So every revelation then must be examined or scrutinized on the basis of how he lines up with his son. That's it. There is no other revelation. God has no other book, has no other means to speak to you and I other than through his son, Jesus. So then it behooves you and I. If God is only speaking through his son, should we not learn his son? Should we not learn sonish? See, when God speaks sonish, we can hear what he's saying and access what he's saying and respond to what he's saying. Does that make sense? Yes. Boy, God who at various times has spoken to us through the prophets and the fathers has in these last days spoken to us only through and by his son. So if it's not sonish, it doesn't line up. And I want to say to you right now, right up front now, it's 10.48 a.m. If I say anything today that is not sonish, don't accept it. If I say anything today that is not sonish, don't accept it. Because it's not the language of God. And if you hear anything else on TV, on radio, or read a book, some article, a blog, and if it does not line up as sonish, don't accept it. That's the only language God is speaking. Now, of course, if we're just reading to, to, for entertainment, it's a different thing. But if you read him because you want to grow and be edified, God has told us how to do it. Uh, is, uh, have I lost anybody so far? Okay, then, let me ask you a question. What is the language of the kingdom of God? Thank you. There you go. There you go. There you go. You're catching it. What is the language of the kingdom of God? What language does God speak? Amen. Did I stretch that or do you see it? <laughs> it was one, one, two. Huge. So all these religions that's coming up with all these new books, these revelations that's come through Mr. Smith or, or whoever else is seen, goes into the wilderness and sees a snake and the snake gives him a vision and all of that nonsense. I mean, how, how now can you can you contrast what they are saying with what of, what of God says? It's madness. There's only one revelation. And his name is Jesus. Hallelujah. Alright. I just thought it's important for us to establish that fact as we go forward. Now back to Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way. 
And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day saying in David today, after such a long time as it has been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also seized from his works as God did from his. Wow. Now this is a huge theme. This theme of rest. And I think at this point, I need to define what rest is so that we can have an appreciation of what this writer is saying to us. From reading those few verses in Hebrews chapter 3, and from what we've read in chapter 4, certain things become absolutely clear. Number one, the promise of the rest of God still abides. In other words, the possibility of rest, of entering into rest, remains today. Do you believe that? Good. Number two, when you read this passage, there is a sense in which this rest of God speaks about the Israelites entering into the promised land after the wilderness years. Okay? You see this in Numbers 13, verses 1 through 33. Numbers 14, verses 1 through 45. Now, remember what I said. I said there's a sense. I didn't say they did. I said there's a sense in which, when you read the passage, it appears as if the passage is addressing the Israelites entering into the promised land. It appears, because it talks about the rebellion, how they hardened their hearts, how they did not enter in because of unbelief. So there's a sense in which, the rest of God to those guys back then has to do with their ability to enter into the promised land. But number three, number three, number three thought here that I'm throwing out, and this is not in your notes at all. Number three thought that I'm throwing out. There is no question based on the passage that the Hebrew Israelites did not enter in. Okay, let me rephrase that. There is no doubt that they did not enter into rest. So let me reproduce three things again. Number one, we know that the promise of rest is still valid today from reading this passage. Number two, we know that there is a sense in which the passage addresses the fact that the Israelites enter the promised land and therefore may have obtained some rest or did not obtain rest on that. Number three, we know certainly, certainly that they did not enter into rest. I, I'll say that again because that, that's, that's kind of, it sounds, I need to find whether 
I need to speak Spanish to explain this. <laughs> Say, so be clearer. Number one is clear. The promise of rest remains today. Number two, reading Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4, there is a sense in which the Israelites entering into the promised land becomes a rest or a type of the rest of God. Number three point, there is no doubt in the mind of this writer and from scriptures that the Israelites did not attain the promised rest of God. I don't want to belabor the point, but let me just say those three things one more time because it sets up the base for everything we're going to be saying from here on. I want to make sure you guys get it. And if you don't understand it, please let me know. Number one, from reading the passage, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4, there is a clear, valid promise of God for me and you to enter into God's rest. Number two, in reading the passage, we get a sense that the Israelites entering the promised land becomes a type of the rest of God. And number three, and this is where we're really going to be camping, there is no doubt based on scriptures that they did not enter. Let me quickly clear that up before we go in. Enter as in entering into rest. Look at Psalms 95. Go to Psalms 95 in your Bible. Psalms 95. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Psalms 95, verses 7 through 11. I guess I need to go there myself. 7 through 11. Psalm 95, verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the, trial, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now this is very interesting. David wrote this. Oh my God. Just eavesdropping on heaven's conversation. He, because he was not there. He heard God telling Israelites, you will not enter my rest. This was hundreds of years after they entered physically into the promised land. I don't know if you guys just heard what I just said. Yes, hundreds of years after Joshua had physically led them through the Jordan. Live in Palestine. Live physically in the promised land. Yet, David was hearing God speak to the Israelites. And the summation of what he heard was God sending them to them, you will not enter my rest. So even though they were physically living in the promised land, God said, you are not in rest. So this is what we know. That what the Hebrew writer was describing to us was not a mere matter of being in a physical place. 
Because if being in a physical place was the rest that God promised, then why would he back, come back and say, you will not enter my rest if they were in the land? You guys get that? Do you understand that? So definitely, the rest of God that we just read in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 is not talking about being in the physical location. So let me define rest for us now. Let me define the rest of God. The kind of rest that I believe God has promised you and I. The kind of rest that I believe God wants you and I to enter in. Let me define it for us. Number one, it is not cessation from labor. When the Bible says entering into rest, it's not saying go and quit your jobs, quit the ministry, don't go home and cook any longer, don't mow your lawn, don't do any... No, 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 no. It's not talking about cessation from labor. Let's get that out right there. Entering into God's rest is not talking about stop working. Although we'll define that in a minute. It's not a cessation from labor. Or, put in a better way, it's not talking about going on vacation. <laughs> secondly, secondly, the rest of God is not a location. It's not a location. There are many that's making tons of tons of millions of dollars in the body of Christ by taking people on pilgrimage to Israel. The promised land. And they stay on TV day and night advertising, marketing, that if you go to Israel, go to River Jordan to take a shower, you bring an oil from Jerusalem, something miraculous will happen to you. It's a lie. It's not sunnish. It is not sunnish. Because God is, cannot be localized. God is not confined to geography. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness, therefore, the world and they that dwell therein. Why will anybody in their little piggy mind think that by going to Jerusalem, you're going to find something about God? You're going to fly all the way from here to Jerusalem? Is God not here? Is God not in Ethiopia? Is he not in Iraq? God is everywhere. So it's not a location. It's not a location. Absolutely not. It's not cessation from work. Secondly, it's definitely not a location. I'm sure you've done it. I've done it. Or you know people who've done this. We say we're going to go away to the mountain for three days and seven days and seek God. Hoping that by getting to the mountain, we're going to get some unique special revelation from God that we do not have where we were. Hello? That's not sunnish. That's not sunnish. If I left Atlanta, a miserable, wretched believer, and I go to the mountains and spend seven days, God help me if I don't come back reasonable, uh, miserable and wretched again. Why? It has nothing to do with location. 
This is what Jesus was saying to the Samaritan woman at the well. The Jews say, on this mountain and on that mountain must you worship. Jesus immediately, quickly, corrected the notion to think that you can put God in a box in a location. God is a spirit. And those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Has nothing to do with location. Absolutely not. So if it's not cessation from work, and if it's not a location, what then is the rest of God? Now, in order for me to explain it to you, ah, let's see. Okay. Well, this looks good. For long you can help us with this. A courtroom scenario. She's a lawyer, trained lawyer. You guys remember the, 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 the case of the century? O.J. Simpson versus the people of California. <laughs> Incredible case. And in the courtroom drama, you can appreciate the prosecution. Masha Clark, I think that was her name, presented their case. Day after day, witness after witness, understand, cross their teeth, dot their eye, and after they have exhausted all their resources and put every possible witness on the stand and presented an airtight case. Marsha Clark sums up that entire prosecution case by saying to the judge, I prosecution rest his case. And then Johnny Cochran gets up. And gets a chance to rebut that and, 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 and to present to the court why everything Masha Clark has said is wrong. And he goes through all his drama, cross the T, dots the I, has the courtroom spellbound in suspense. And after all of that drama, what does he say? The defense also what? Rest. Now, I'm saying that because you need to understand what God is saying by rest. What were those two sides saying to the courtroom? The prosecution was saying to the court, we have painstakingly taken the time to examine this case and we have come to the conclusion there is nothing else that needs to be added, added or taken away. We rest. And the difference is saying the same thing. That after having heard the allegations against our client, we have done our due diligence, examined all of the facts of the case, and also have come to the conclusion that based on what we presented, we are confident and we rest that the verdict will be in our favor. So both sides rest. Why? on the basis of the exhaustive and very detailed due diligence that the case demands. Let's find out how God, what God said. I'm leaving you hanging because I want, I want the, speak, the scriptures to speak for itself. Did you, did you, don't forget what I just showed you. What I just shared with you. 
Go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. In uh, where shall I start this? Verse 5. Genesis 1 5. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Verse 8. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Verse 13. Uh, actually, verse 12. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields sealed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Already a pattern is developing. I hope you're catching it. Verse 17. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Verse 22. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters in the sea, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Okay? Now, verse 31. Genesis 1, verse 31. Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Genesis 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the hosts of them were what? Finished. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all the work which God had created and made. <laughs> Two points. At the beginning I told you that we know clearly from Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 that the rest of God is still valid and that it abides and remains and is available. We just saw it in Genesis. What do we see? The first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, and the sixth day. Clearly, scripture says to you, the evening and the morning. In other words, clearly from those verses, the Bible made it clear, you saw the beginning of that day and the ending of it. Day one started, it ended. Day two started and it ended. Day three started and it ended. Four started, ended. Five ended. Six started, ended. How about, verse, how about the seventh day? Genesis 2 verse 1. God rested on his seventh day from all his work, but you did not see an end of it. That is the only open-ended day. Why? 
because that last that day seven is now clearly clearly when the lord of hebrews was telling them that there remains a rest for the people of god he knows what he was saying god began day one and ended it began day two and ended it day three he began it and ended it day four he began it and ended it five he began and ended six he began and ended seven he began there's no end to it why because day seven is what you and i are living in huge i pray that you see what god is trying to tell you now i'm about to tell you what rest means i said all that i've said so far to set it up so you can understand and appreciate it what does rest mean we must derive our meaning from god's meaning because this word rest was only first used in this passage in genesis What did the Bible mean when it said God rested? Does it mean that God had labored for six days and oh, like a laborer, he was so tired, sweaty, man exhausted. Said, oh my God, Toya, get me a chair so I can just sit down and rest. I'm about to pass out. Is that the picture we get of God resting? No. No. God can never be tired. It's a spirit. But when we read the passage in Genesis 2, and really, even all the verses in Genesis 1, look how, how much of a stickler for perfection God is. Day 1, he looked and examined everything he did. He examined it. It's not just taking it for granted that because he created the day, it's fine. No. No. He created the day and went back and checked on the day. Okay, yes, yes, yes. Check, check, check. I'm satisfied. It's good. Day 2, check, 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 check. Ah, yes. Satisfied. It's good. And on and on. So God in resting, this is what it means. And you need to catch this. What God is saying is, from my perspective as the Lord God of all the universe, I looked at everything I have made. The sun, the stars, the moons, the mountains, the animal kingdom, the human kingdom, all the elements, the gold, the silver, everything you can ever think about, everything that the might of my hand has created, I examined them and I've come to the conclusion, like the prosecutor, like the defense attorney, I rest my case on the fact that there's nothing else that needs to be added or taken away from what I've done. I rest my case. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. Nothing else needs to be added. That is what rest means. I've done it. It is perfectly executed. It's perfectly done. And from a perspective and standpoint of examination, when I examined everything I've made, I come to this big pronouncement, arrest. Arrest. And so God now is inviting me and you that because we are created in his image and likeness and because he has redeemed us through the blood of his son that you and I should enter into his rest a position, 
a disposition where you know that everything that concerns your welfare and well-being has already been taken care of. It is completed. That is what Jesus was referring to. When on the cross, he made the pronouncement, it is finished. Just as his father said it in Genesis chapter 2, it is finished. Jesus recounts what the father said by saying, it is finished. There is nothing else that needs to be added to your salvation. And shall I also say, nothing can be taken away from it. Huge. The point is, as human beings, it is too good to be true. Too good to be true. Now, wow. The rest of God. Now, do we, do we, do we, do we understand that concept so far? The rest of you, do we, Tonya, you have a quizzical look on your face. Do you understand this? <laughs> okay, I just want to make sure. I don't want to lose anybody because it's a journey. The rest of God is that disposition, that sense of knowing it is finished. You don't have to strive. You don't have to sweat. You don't have to toil. It is finished. Now, in, let, let me see what I don't want. In establishing this position, hmm, there's an equation I want to give us. For all of you mathematicians, you're going to like this. That will help us grasp the rest. Because the point is, okay, if it is done, it is finished, there's nothing else that needs to be added or taken away from what God has done in my life. How do I get it? How do I go to that place where I'm at rest? There's a simple equation that I want to give us that will help us with that. And it's simply grace plus faith equals rest. Grace, the grace of God, plus faith, faith in the Son of God equals rest. In other words, you will never enter in the rest if you don't understand and accept grace. You will not. Because you're always thinking there's something you have to do to make it happen. And if you have grace and you lack faith, you still be frustrated. Because everything we are talking about must be appropriated by faith. By faith. The grace is there, but it takes faith to believe it. And from reading Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, I'm almost getting ahead of myself. But I think it's best for me to just throw these nuggets out now so you can, because these words are going to become critical as we move on. Back to Hebrews chapter 3. Let me just throw this out now. And then I'll go to David for a minute. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 12, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of what? Unbelief. Oh, okay. Hebrews chapter 4, 
No, Hebrews chapter 3 yet. Chapter 3, verse 19. Hebrews 3, 19. What does it say? So we see that they could not enter in because of what? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. They did not enter in because they did not pray. No, no, you're not serious. They did not enter in because they were not fasting hard. Okay, I'm about to drop a bomb. I'm looking at Pastor Davis here. I'm about to drop a bomb. Douglas, I'm about to drop one. God has never sent anybody to hell. Never. Now, I told you at the beginning, if you're not speaking Spanish, you're going to get lost. Because I have the book in my hand now. I'm about to go there. No one has ever been sent to hell by God. Now you're saying, Pastor, oh my, I hope you're not a cult person disciple. You're not saying that ever. I can hear that my prime boy Yanko behind me there is <laughs> he's thinking, oh my pastor, this man has backslidden. <laughs> God has never Never send anybody to hell. John chapter 3. Let's, let's just begin to unravel this box. <laughs> John 3, verse 16. For God so love the world he gave his only begotten son that whoever what? No, 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 no. It has to be whoever prays. No? Maybe whoever fasting? <laughs> uh, I'm praying that we're going to start not only speaking Sonish, but reading Sonish from today. <laughs> whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. You know why we're not getting people born again? Because we are condemning them. How are, how are they going to get born again when we condemn them? God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. Did you hear that? Please remember that the next time you see a homosexual. Because before, before we can even show them the love of God, we've already marked out their portion in hell. It's three by four. You're going to be standing six You go, Poo, I'm going to turn the temperature up. You smell sulfur 24-7. And then we say, well, Jesus loves you. After we've condemned them, bought their plot in hell, and the whole nine years, ah, Jesus loves you. Which one are we going to believe? Now, are you saying, Pastor, we should embrace homosexuality? No. No. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm clearly saying to us, the perspective of God and the language of God 
And God is saying to us here in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why will he condemn his own creation? The rapists and the uh, homosexual and all of those crazy things that we hear about and read about, who made them? I didn't say God made them in that condition, but I'm saying who created them? Whose image and likeness are they bearing? Why would God condemn himself? Let's read on. Verse 18. Listen to this now. I just said to you that God did not send anybody to hell. Read this. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. 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 Why? Why is he condemned? Why is he going to hell? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I submit to you this morning, the only reason anybody goes to hell is because they don't believe in the name of the Son of God. And that choice is up to them. You can choose to believe it or not believe it. God does not make the choice for us. So back to my point. God has never sent anyone to hell. They send themselves because they choose not to believe on the only begotten Son of God. Did, did, did the bomb land safely? Did we all dodge the bomb? or Did, it, did, they, did they have any collateral damage? Did you understand what I just explained? Yes. Does it make any sense? Yes. Did I stretch the truth? No. This is a summit, which means you have a voice. This is a dialogue. So I just want you to know that. This is huge. So the key here is believe. That's why I said rest is an effect. Rest is the summation, is the result of grace working with faith. So if I'm having problem believing, for sure, I, I, I will not get to rest. Amen? Wow. Why is it so quiet? And this is the easier part. It gets tougher and rougher. Amen? So now let's define grace and then I'm going to move on here to Psalm 23. Grace is defined, and we all know this, as unmerited, unearned, and undeserved favor. It's unmerited. It's unearned and it's definitely undeserving. If God gave me what I deserve, I won't be here. So this is the good news. Grace has nothing to do with you. Nothing. In fact, grace existed long before you and I came along. <laughs> grace 
in this equation is God's part. He supplies the grace. He supplies the grace. That's God's part. That's God's part. Okay? Faith, on the other hand, is my positive response to God's grace. Faith appropriates what God has already provided for you. Therefore, faith is my part. Now, you say the rest of God, why, why is this so important? Why is it important for me and you to enter into rest? It is important because you can only grow to be what God has called you to be when you are at rest. You can only grow to become what God has called you to be when you are at rest. For the believer, it's a paradigm that we really need to uh, embrace. You and I, in the new covenant, according to Ephesians 2.6, the Bible says, we are seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. We are seated together with him. And you and I only should labor, work, from a sitting position. I will explain that in a minute. Many of you guys here are good students of the tabernacle, so I'll use that illustration to make my point. In the tabernacle of Moses, there are three compartments. We have the outer court, we have the holy place, and then we have the most holy place. In the outer court, that's where all the animals were slayed and placed on the altar. In the holy place, you have the table of showbread that the priests eat off day to day, and you have the golden lampstand that gives light or illumination in that compartment, in that room, which the priest must attend to every day by trimming the wicks W-I-C-K, trimming the wicks on the lamp and pouring oil on it continually. And then, of course, you have the golden altar of incense that they burn incense on all day long. Out of court, they kill the animals. Holy place, you have the golden lampstand, altar of incense, table of showbread. Only the priest minister here. And then, of course, you have a veil. And then beyond the veil, you go to the most holy place wherein you have the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. Believers. Out of court, I'm saved. That's why the animal is sacrificed. The blood is shed for me. I'm born again in the outer court. But God's goal is not for me to come here. This is a place to celebrate my salvation, thank God for him, and praise him for being born again. And immediately proceed into the holy place for what? I record, I have salvation. Holy place, I have service. Service. 
and ministering to God's people, trimming the lampstand, baking the bread, making sure the altar of incense is burning. Prayer. So in the holy place, I have service. What happens in the most holy place? That's the place where I sit. It's a place for sitting. There's no activity in this room. Why? Because the God Almighty himself is symbolized in this room and it is from here, oh my God, that he needs a body for his head to sit on to go out and do things. And I, and, I'm, and I know I'm jumping all over the place now. You see, you can't come to this third room with your head. That's what the veil is for. You cut your head off, take your head off, and lay it over there, and, because you don't need a head in here. Your head is already there. It's seated. He just needs your body to go and do the work. But the point I'm making is this. The real point I'm trying to make is this. It is from this seated position that we receive the life of God, receive the revelation of God, and being in a seated position, I can now go out and do what I've heard while I'm sitting because, it's, because while I was sitting, it's made that deposit in me and I can go get it done. Okay. Let me say it this way. In the Old Covenant, out of court, holy place, most holy place. First of all, oh my God, thank you, Jesus. In the outer court, only the Israelites, or rather, the Israelites can never leave the outer court area. That's all they're limited to in the Old Covenant. Holy place, only the priests can function. If you're not from the tribe of Levi, you can't come here. So that eliminates 11 tribes of Israel. And in the most holy place, only one man, the high priest, can enter, and that once a year. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Did you see the hierarchical system under the Old Covenant? The Old Covenant functioned based on hierarchy. Who you are, who you know, what your rank is, etc., etc., etc. But not so in the New Covenant. Not so. And when the high priest goes in that third room in the Old Covenant, he cannot sit. He does his function and gets out right away. He could not sit. But the Bible said Jesus... In Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. Having offered a perfect sacrifice. Once and for all. After it was all done. Unlike Aaron. The priesthood. After he's done it all. He sat. Why is he sitting? He's done. There's nothing to add. There's nothing to take away. It's all done. So he's saying to you and I. I have reserved a seat for you. He's sitting. He said, Steve, come. Doug, come. Yanko, come. Mervin, come. There's a seat waiting for you with your name on it. Come and enjoy the rest that I have already obtained for you. Sit with me. And in this sitting position, I can whisper things in your ears. Things you can otherwise never hear or know. I will whisper them. Listen to me. The best example of all of this is David. David, oh my God, 
My bishop, your parents knew something that I pray that you will, ever, you will enter into to give it the name they gave you. His name is David. And I'm saying to you, you see, in our minds, mind and imagination, we may think uh, this is just a careless thing. I'm going to name this one uh, Jacob or Samuel. No, 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 no. God remotely behind the scenes is controlling the affairs of man. Your father may have been a pagan worshiper. I don't care. It doesn't matter. If God could speak to an ass and tell the ass what to do and when to do it, precisely to his prophet, you are going to tell me the God we just described that's not limited by location? We'll now say because somebody is a pagan worshiper that I cannot speak through them? Hello? Question. How did God speak to Abraham? Who at that time was a moon worshiper? Hello? And I'm saying this to you, my friend, because I'm telling you the name you carry. I pray that God will give you the grace to live up to that name. Because David, singularly, in the Old Testament, was a man who, above the rest of them, understood what we're talking about today than anything else. Let's go to the scriptures. Acts 13. God will help us to get to the notes that you have in your hands. Acts 13. Ah! I want, to, I want to throw out a challenge. Everybody here, go and study David. Go and study him. Go and study him. Verse 22. Okay, verse 21. Let's start from verse 21. Acts 13, verse 21. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king. I'm going to give a, question, a quiz now after this verse. So get ready for your quiz. It's coming. Yes. Acts 13, verse 22 now. Acts 13, 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Here's your quiz. What in the heck was so unique about David that God said, this is a man after my own heart? Comma. Who will do all of my will? Now, before you answer, or before you attempt to answer, please look at the catalog of names. Father Abraham, Noah, the mighty Isaiah the prophet, who saw Jesus in his passion thousands of years before he came. 
Is it the weeping prophet Jeremiah who was so consistent in spite of the fact that people did not receive his message, kept on preaching it? Is it John the Baptist? On and on and on and on and on. That catalog, oh my God, how could I miss that Elijah? The son of Tishbite, or the, of the of tribe of Tishbite, or Elisha. The one that did twice as many miracles as the Lord Jesus, as Elijah himself. This long list of great heroes in the faith. Oh my goodness. How about the one that poured oil on David himself? Samuel, the anointer of kings. And God looked at all of them. One by one by one and by one and one and one and zeroed in on David. said, this is a man after my heart. What qualifies him? Because if David shows up in our church, <laughs> hey, adulterer, I can see him coming. Hey, he's scared to look at the cheeks. What nice girls in the church. As if that is not enough, he was a murderer. As if that is not enough, he was not a great father to his children. I'm giving you all these disqualifiers that will not make David even qualify to be a deacon in our church. And in spite of this, God looks at this guy and records for me and you for all time and eternity in the scriptures and did not back away from it. You see, it's one thing for me to say something about Pastor Davis when he's here. Ah, he's a man of God. He's very committed. Wonderful man. Stable. Da, 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 da. You know, he runs his own when he's in my presence. And then when he's not there, I'll go to the show and say, everything I said, don't mark it. I'm just being a politician. God said it, backs it up, and stands upon it. So I'm throwing, I'm throwing it open. Why? Why do you think God is calling this man a man of his own heart? Because if we can understand it, we will understand the rest of God. Because obviously, God is not judging a person by the same metrics you and I judge them today. It can't be. Because if it was, what would make this guy qualify? Please tell me. He has a flexible belief system. Anybody else? Any other takers? Thanks for, the, for, for, for your comment. Anybody else? Why? Do you guys wonder about this? These are the things that keep me up at night. I read a passage like this. I say, wait a minute, God. If David was to come to my church, I would disqualify him. And you are saying to me that this is a man after your own heart. You didn't say that about Jeremiah. You didn't say that about Elijah, Elisha, Abraham, your friend. Abraham, God said he's my friend. But yet, God did not say he had his heart. This is where the robber meets the road. (laughs) 
note takers, about all you Bible students, I'm looking at all your scholars. Fine boy Yanko. <laughs> Pastor Falahan, you are a lawyer, you are well trained. Hmm, this guy is even wise. He said, I don't know. <laughs> like Ezekiel. God, that noise. <laughs> Ezekiel, can these bones live? Yes, Dickness Johnson. Here's the mic. How do I turn this on, Sammy? Is it on? Yes. I'm thinking the rest of the um, men of God in the Bible do services like you've been telling us. And David find a place of rest in the Lord. Whatever that he has gone through, he always go back and rest and worship with the Lord. That is how David conquered the heart of the Lord. Hmm. Amen. He always went on. Dr. Nelford, you cannot answer the question. <laughs> you are prohibited. Under section 2 of law number 3. No, just <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have a question? Pass the mic to him, please. Just. We thank God for this section. But I must uh, confess that it's a little bit of struggle. I want you to help me understand in depth this scripture from First uh, Corinthians, the letter of Paul, uh, chapter six. I think you are getting ahead of me. Oh, because I'm stuck. <laughs> you are stuck. What have I said to to to, to stick well, you? <laughs> Okay. Uh, Read the scripture. What scripture? And I know it's not by works, but at the same time. First Corinthians 4, what? First Corinthians 6. Oh, 6. Okay. From verse 9. Do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not okay. deceive neither fornicators. Okay. Idolaters. Okay. I think I see. I think I see where you're going. Okay. I think I see where you're going. Okay. So, what's your question? Uh, in entering into the kingdom, or, or I'm trying to put it well so that it doesn't sound like a critic here. But the bottom line is the criteria for not going to hell. <laughs> is believe in Jesus. Okay. <laughs> I think you can help. So I don't want to okay. look negative. But okay. I think I hear you. I mentioned the fact that God has never sent anybody to hell. That what takes people to hell is their unbelievism. So he's now trying to show me catalog of sins in the scriptures that perhaps... It's not unbelief, fornicator, adulterers, etc., etc., which is not unbelief. And he wants to know uh, where do we put that in light of the statement I make? Can I just say this? Can, can, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Not done? And, yeah. And, and how do you 
how do you explain the period of sanctification? Because in using uh, Tabernacle of Moses, yes, from the outer court into the holies of holies, yes, 